What's going on, everyone? This is Mike O. You're listening to an episode of Hobby Talk, and I certainly appreciate you doing so. I recorded an episode with Phil, a.k.a. Filmington, a little over a week ago. Generally speaking, I get these episodes up within 24 hours or so. That did not happen this time. Had a bit of a delay, and then things really changed and took a uh, a major turn in this country, which I'm sure everyone is very aware of. So with the outbreak of the coronavirus, I just wanted to do a pre-episode little chat, just to kind of put in perspective uh, our thoughts and our feelings at the time. Obviously, the coronavirus is something that was in the news cycle, and there were some cases in the United States, but the outbreak wasn't what it is today. Obviously, there are a ton of health concerns, a lot of changes and restrictions throughout this country. The economy has changed. Uh, Sports are delayed. The NBA season is suspended. The NHL season is suspended. Major League Baseball is an indefinite suspension. We don't know if opening day will be the middle of May, the middle of June, maybe not even till July. There's just a lot of uncertainty and unknown things out in this country on so many levels, and I just wanted to make sure I kind of explained the time frame of this episode just so it would make more sense, because we really didn't have this same mindset. If Phil and I were to record an episode today, we'd probably be thinking and maybe speaking about things slightly differently. So just wanted to kind of give you that little disclaimer, and I want to wish everyone the best of health, the best of luck, and Please make sure you're making smart decisions for yourself and your family. Uh, I think a lot of people, especially younger people, from what I'm seeing, are thinking, oh, well, this may not affect me, and it, it will and it can affect you, and it certainly can affect others you know So, and don't know. So please, uh, please take this situation seriously and think about it, but still enjoy the hobby, and obviously we all need to... Uh, spend some time away from the real world news. We need to take it seriously. We need to stay informed, but you need to take some time to distract yourself. So I hope this episode can do that for at least a few people out there. What's going on, everyone? Mike go back with another episode of Hobby Talk. Thrilled today to be talking to Filmington, bringing some quality content, quality cards. Phil, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Happy to be here. It should be uh, a lot of fun, ton of interesting topics. It's an exciting, interesting time in the hobby. Sometimes you kind of have to pinch yourself to say, hey, is all this really going on? But before we get into that, Phil, you're uh, well known on YouTube as Filmington. You also do some stuff on Instagram, and you're pretty active in a lot of Facebook groups. Is that all correct? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, Definitely started with YouTube, had a lot of fun making content. That was about a year and a half ago. And then I found out about all these awesome Facebook groups where you can kind of find out, um, you know, more about specific cards, who's buying, selling, trading. And recently, I was probably long overdue to start up an Instagram account, but it's been another great outlet for me to show off my cards. I've been able to make some deals outside of eBay, which is always great. Yeah, Instagram has never been my personal favorite, but it is obviously very popular. You could probably make a case that 
it's the easiest to grow on Instagram. I feel like I don't even try on there and you constantly get notifications of new followers, but they do have a really good setup where you can do short video clips. The photographs, you can flip through really quick if you have just a few brief moments. I really do like the way you can message people kind of back and forth. It's super easy and that lends itself really well to uh, kind of making deals with cards, whether they're trades, sales, and different situations like that. Indeed, like you said, very low effort um, in order to kind of build your image. Now, I haven't been able to maximize, I guess, my potential from Instagram. Maybe I should figure out like, you know, how to better market the Filmington brand. But like you said, uh, it's been pretty easy to accumulate uh, quite a bit of uh, followers from, from that platform. So let's talk a few minutes about your YouTube channel real quick before we uh, dive into all this card stuff because we could go on for hours about everything going on there. Uh, you said you jumped on to the YouTube uh, community, got involved in cards about a year and a half ago, and you've certainly built up quite the following. You've very active, checking out other channels. What kind of helped you propel yourself into uh, doing some YouTube videos. And I do know one uh, product you came up with that has helped exponentially grow that <laughs> platform for you. Yeah. Well, like you said, you know, that the rookie card explosion box is a repack slash subscription product that I launched back in January of 2019. And that's when I was very, very new to the YouTube platform. I would um, attribute most of, most of my success to that product as well as my recent speculation series where I go into some of the prospecting and stuff. But back to the subscription product, um, basically when I joined YouTube, I was watching some of my favorite YouTubers at the time, Silver Jackify being one, and I saw the idea for a subscription product because it was already out there. Uh, there were a couple companies or offerings at the time known as Loot Locker and Card Crate. And, um, you know, lower end, maybe about $30, $35 price point. But I, I saw what was a great idea, but I didn't agree with the execution. And I thought to myself, um, how could I bring something to the marketplace that um, is something that I would rather watch get opened? And I would think that people would rather open themselves. And being a very young, um, <laughs> ambitious, uh, aspiring YouTuber, I was trying to get more views and subscribers myself. Um, and I was like, you know, how can I, how can I do this faster? You know, how can I really, you know, propel, um, my, my subscribers, my watchers, my analytics, all that stuff to be closer to a silver jackify or some of the guys that I was, you know, somewhat idolizing at the time. So, that's when I thought, you know, if I can make a subscription product um, and focus on making three things better, then I thought that it was something that could potentially garner a lot more interest. You know, and this is given that I only had like about 86 subscribers at the time when I launched it. So kind of a courageous move uh, that I made, but it ended up working out. Um, I did have some, some key advocates that helped uh, push it forward for sure. Um, Chris Card, Silver Jack, Fi Up North Collectors, Bowman 1951 at the beginning. But but basically the three things that I worked on um, where I try to really differentiate differentiate my product, number one was the quality of the, the packs within it. Um, a lot of Panini Chronicles uh, that I had seen and the other repack products 
something where I wanted to differentiate myself was include only high quality products. And as someone that collects mostly high end cards of, you know, top quality and premium sets, I thought that I had a pretty good understanding of that. Um, and another thing I wanted to focus on was variety. So some of these other repack products, they've been including the same packs from the same sets, the same years, month after month, uh, mostly focusing on the super modern stuff from at the time, 2018, I guess. And, you know, I was like, well, why not the stuff from like 2013, 2014? There's a lot of key rookies in those sets. And, you know, me in me doing that, I got kind of got away from the whole, you know, guaranteed hits or you have a better chance of getting a hit from these packs. And I focused on kind of double down on the, the rookie card, making it more rookie card intensive. Um, and of course, we've seen over the last two years, especially over the last year, the surge in the popularity of the base rookie card of the flagship brand. And that's really helped my cause because I've been including more of those products and probably any other repack product out there. The only problem now with that surge is the prices and trying to uh, refill that inventory, I'm sure can be a challenge at times. It definitely is. Uh, I recently had to implement a price increase. Uh, hoping it'll be the last price increase of 2020. But um, yes, like you said, and you can imagine over the last month, things have gotten quite um, volatile and uh, quite hectic in the Topps flagship world. And we'll probably talk about that a little bit later. But um, the, the third thing that I tried to focus on with my product has to do with transparency. And it's not necessarily, you know, you know what you're going to get before you buy into the product because the way that PayPal subscriptions work and 98% of my business right now is really subscribers anyways. You know, they're not always going to know what's in it before they pay, but everybody gets um, basically the same pack lineup. Uh, I've seen a lot of these other repack products um, where the lineups can differ even uh, throughout the course of the, that same release, that same month, they can differ substantially across two different YouTubers that open the the product, you know, kind of based on, how many subs or watchers views that these YouTubers get, you know, you're getting sometimes a difference of $150 of value across boxes. Uh, I saw one very, very popular YouTuber. Maybe he used to play baseball. Uh, <laughs> he opened up a repack product and actually got five extra packs of Bowman Chrome, a pack of 2011 tops update. I've seen another very popular YouTuber in this community. Um, he was able to get autographs from the same product like 10 or 11 months in a row. And I know most people aren't mathematicians, but I mean, the, the probability of that, I think, was around 1% to 3%. So that's like a, a free throw shooter with a 65% clip uh, free throw success rate kind of joining the NBA and then hitting his first 11 or 12 free throws, which really doesn't ever happen. So. Um, what I, what I try to tell myself was, you know, every subscriber, every consumer that I have is worth the same to me. They're all paying customers. Uh, they're all very important in pushing this forward, whether they show the hits on Instagram, Facebook, or they put a video out on YouTube, you know, I'm not giving any special breaks to any one customer. And I think that's really helped kind of build up the credibility of the product and myself and gain people's trust in that regard. Yeah, and it's just a lot of fun. It was a well-thought-out product. It's uh, well-packaged. You provide the list of uh, packs and the potential rookies, so it's kind of easy to open. You can glance at it and go, all right, this is who I'm looking for, since you know you have a variety of products in there. It sometimes can be 
hard to remember from product to product who the key rookies are. And it really lends itself really well to being shared on social media so people can either snap off the photos and share it on an Instagram or Facebook. Or you, it's content for YouTube. It's an easy break to do, kind of break it, show off what you get. And it's certainly something that has lent itself to many really sweet hits. We've seen a number of one-of-ones, older cards, pretty sure uh, – Brian got a Derek Jeter gold. That was out of your product, right? 93 tops. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I think there have been at least three, a thousand dollar plus cards pulled. And I'm talking raw values. That doesn't even include the 93 tops gold Jeter, which, uh, we know that Brian Roth got a PSA 10 on. There's also been a bat down Acuna that was pulled on video. Um, just a ton of fire. It's just, it's amazing. Um, you know, and I've been able to expand and expand easily. There's been a lot of demand for it. So yeah. And I like speaking back about the quality of packs and the variety, um, like who else, I, I would assume that 95% of my subscriber base for the product would never go out and purchase a sealed baseball card exchange, authenticated box of 83 tops. So how else do you get that opportunity? 981 Donruss, 1992 Bowman. These are products that most people, including myself, We'll just never be able to open. It's just not feasible. It just doesn't make sense. But when the price point's right and you get a little bit of variety and, and you can see what other people are getting to and show it up on YouTube and it's just really fun. So the way the way I see it is, you know, most people it seems that they extract about like thirty dollars of value just from the fun, just from the chase. So it doesn't always amount to the hits you get. Of course, that's always great. But as we know, you know, pack chasing, pack ripping, rookie card chasing. It's really all about the hunt, too. That's why you're doing it. Yeah, the fun factor is an is a value that you have to assess when you're breaking stuff. But you certainly have an opportunity to get different stuff, open variety. And like you said, it gives you a chance to open packs that are otherwise generally unaffordable. To buy the full box, really pricey, big-time gamble. And you really don't want to buy individual packs of those products, generally speaking. Um, just from random people on eBay and such. So I do think it's been a fantastic repack product. I'm not someone who's always been a fan of repack products. I mean, you see kind of these cheap repacks in your local Walgreens or uh, Targets. They're usually fairly low quality. I understand from time to time someone will get something cool out of them, but that's pretty infrequent. And there's just a lot of other repack uh, products out there that are probably more of a money dump, whereas I think your product is uh, well worth it, but it's tough to get because those subscriptions are pretty filled up, generally speaking. Yeah, I think over the last three weeks, I've only lost one subscriber. So my retention rate is uh, it's definitely at an all-time high, probably in the 98 to 99% range. So yeah, it's one of those things where I could probably expand again whether that's another 36 or even another 72 boxes but uh got a baby coming and there's some economic tensions that i'm trying to see if you know what happens with that and but there's a chance i could expand again we'll see we'll see what the future holds you never know you always have that opportunity to expand it'd be a lot easier to just expand at some point rather than kind of expand too quickly and then tell some people you know what i'm gonna scale back so you're out of luck so i would just uh probably keep going the way you're going and see how things play out from there yeah with the subscription model having most of my business from subscribers i can't just start cutting people off like you said so 
uh, that that's one of the reasons why I've been very, very, uh, I guess, disciplined on when and how much I expand. So we'll see uh, what happens with the general markets in the economy in this country. But for right now, the uh, the modern baseball card market is surging nonetheless. Uh, people don't seem to be too worried about anything other than their modern cards. And it's kind of mind-boggling at times. I think it's taken us all a little bit by surprise. I mean, certainly we've seen this hobby grow over the last five years or so. It's kind of been on that upward scale. More and more people are rediscovering the hobby. We've seen that trend continue. Card prices have been increasing. Modern cards especially have been very popular. This winter, I felt like was the first time in the last few years where we really didn't see much of a dip. Maybe there were a few cards here and there that dropped in price a little bit, but generally speaking, not much of a dip. I don't think either of us, and I'm not trying to speak for you, but I don't think either of us thought that we would see an escalation in price that we have, especially over the last couple of weeks. You thought spring training coming, you're going to see a moderate surge, but uh, how about this modern market that is just going bananas? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's, it's crazy. I do a weekly show. I do it twice a month. It's a weekly show though, a local show where I set up and sell and I, um, I think, I think we broke two attendance records back to, in back to back weeks recently. And this is a show that's been going on for at least 30 years. So we're talking, you know, not just the peak of this generation, but also the generation that preceded it when, uh, you know, before the MLB player strike. So, um, I would say that up till two or three weeks ago, the peak kind of made sense to me. The, the surge in interest uh, preseason, and it was a little bit different than usual in that we didn't see the normal drop, whether that's between 10 to 25% of all players in the offseason when collectors start to focus on football, and then usually after the Super Bowl picks back up. So I'd say that it was a little bit different this year um, from the get-go in that we didn't really see that same drop across all players. We actually saw a uh, an increased interest in younger players between the ages of 21, 23, even some key prospects. Uh, Baseball America's top 100 list definitely helped that as well. But Juan Acuna, Fernando Tatis, Gleyber Torres, Juan Soto, um, those types of players, along with Luis Robert and others, um, you know, they started to get pretty expensive between late. November to mid-January. And then, as you know, over the last two or three weeks, the the increased interest in flagship rookies across key names like Ronald Acuna, Pete Alonso, Tatis, Bellinger, Yelich, uh, even Trout, which doesn't really surprise me, which might actually be disconnected to the, to the others in regards to the impetus to what caused that. But that's <laughs> that's been pretty crazy. Uh, I talked about in a recent video, Cody Bellinger, his prices were up, uh, depending on you know where your baseline is, between three to four x on the U.S. 50 swinging tops update rookie in a PSA 10. That's just crazy. Um, Cody Bellinger, okay, maybe he was a bit undervalued. Uh, this is a guy who's on the Dodgers, great market, probably the second best in baseball. He won a rookie of the year. He almost won the MVP twice. He's had a 15 cumulative WAR across his entire career. He's a great defender. And, you know, last year, despite his slump in the second half, I think his strikeouts were in check, unlike his 2018 season where he really struggled. So, yeah, I'm expecting big things from Bellinger again this year. 
Um, but but like some of what we've seen recently, again, with like a three to four X spike, there's more collectors plus investors coming into the hobby and the base cards are more attainable uh, for the common person and it mitigates their risk instead of them picking up a higher end card like a Bowman Chrome Auto or a Topps flagship parallel. But it's just pretty crazy to see. It's something I had never seen before and that I didn't certainly expect. Yeah, it's just mind boggling. Like that Bellinger Chrome update in a 10. At some point in the offseason, I was purchasing a pre war Phillies card. And the only reason I bought a Bellinger is the seller had that as well. And I won an auction for like $41. And I did it. I was just like, eh, this seems like a decent deal. It's slightly underpriced in my opinion. And I can combine shipping. And then I look and I see these things going for over $200. I'm like, what is going on? It's mind-boggling. Right, right. Yeah, and then that... that um hmt 10 card at the tops chrome update at one point in a psa 10 that was close to 100 bucks but that was also when cody bellinger was at his peak probably in may of 2019 and when there was um probably a limited pop of psa 10s and of course as we know those numbers can turn around quite quickly with a uh, modern card that you know wasn't short printed and um it's crazy to see it come back and now be about 200 bucks yeah, you're always going to see the bump in the pop reports. Once a card starts gaining attention and people see those prices, I think we saw it with a guy like Matt Chapman, a guy who had limited cards graded because he's a smaller market, not well known by your moderate collector. And his prices were pretty high, and then people start sending all their Matt Chapmans in to get graded, and then it kind of floods the market to a bit of a degree. But uh, yeah, this modern uh, surge is... It definitely comes off as a little crazy for those who've been in the hobby for a while. I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons for it. We are at the time of the year uh, where spring training is in full swing. We're only a few weeks away from the season, so it's all optimism right now. Uh, there's not a lot of negativity. Once the season gets going, that's when you start having more injuries, guys in slumps and such. But it's all optimism. Everyone feels like their team has a shot, that their player is going to have a career year. I do think that's playing a factor. I think the insane talent in baseball, I think that has been giving baseball more attention. Of course, you know, you, you can debate all you want the different popularities of sports, and obviously some sports are more popular than others. But baseball in the United States still has a very good hold on collectors, a ton of collectors from baseball, and people are realizing and recognizing the immense talent that we have um, in the game right now. And these guys are just incredible players. So I think that's drawing a lot of attention. I do think that Astro scandal, it may be, may be a negative for the Astro individuals, but I do think that spiked some people's uh, interest in baseball as well. And of course, influencers in social media, whether they be an ex-Major League pitcher who's making YouTube videos and bringing in a huge audience, and he's bringing in people who maybe weren't involved in the hobby that are finding him through uh, Twitter and such, or a guy like Gary V who just brings a whole another group of people into the hobby, people who, you know, follow him on social media and now they're getting involved. I do think we have people coming into the hobby at a very high rate, um, whether they be in here to collect or just to pick stuff up and flip it invest it, whatever their uh, goal is. 
Um, and then you just have the cycle of new people finding the hobby and people refining the hobby who collect it back in the day and now they're kind of being reintroduced about by it, whether it's seeing a link to something via social media or maybe their kids are getting involved, but the hobby has been growing and I don't know how sustainable these prices are long-term, but I feel like it's only going to get bigger before it uh, maybe settles down a bit. I don't know what your thoughts are on all of those uh, topics there, Phil. You know, like you said, there's a whole lot going on and that baseball card or baseball interest, which, you know, you can talk about attendance or viewership statistics and attendance numbers are publicly available. And it's really no secret. Those are going down slowly year after year. Um, but that's not always going to be linear, linearly related to baseball card interest. Um, and I know based on my experiences at shows, based on the amount of messages that I'm fielding through Instagram, there is a lot of beginner questions. There's a lot of newbies, whether they're people, like you said, they're either ones that found interest in cards or re rediscover their interest when they were younger, probably more likely. I feel like most people that I'm finding did have some passion for cards when they collected at a younger age during the eighties or nineties, but the prices of today, are they sustainable? I don't, I still am not sold on the tops flagship prices of right now with uh, PSA 10s, the most recent surge, but even if they are to fall back a little bit, and even if it is just a short-term plateau and then they go back up again, say next year, I think that would be still very positive for the hobby. Um, and that reflects definitely an increased demand, um, staying power, and um, you know if those prices can be supported, so like the Ronald Acuna US 250 in a PSA 10, if that doesn't drop below 150 ever again, I wouldn't be surprised. And it really 150 was an all time high as of what, like about three weeks ago. So, and now they're selling for about 220 240. So I think they could maybe come back a little bit. Um, something I've noticed is that this sort of price surge hasn't really trickled into the Bowman Chrome first autographs as much. Uh, my viewpoint is that you know, those are still going to also be the Holy Grail cards along with the Topps flagship uh, rookies. And I I think over time, Bowman Chrome first autographs are not going to be cannibalized completely by flagship. They might not appreciate to the same extent. It might be a little bit disproportionate, but I still think those are also key cards to have, and those are going to garner a ton of attention as well. Um, you mentioned, you know, Gary V and his impact on the hobby. It was interesting. He actually... Um, went live yesterday on Facebook for over two hours and he was answering all sorts of questions. And he acknowledged himself that, listen, like if you're wondering why I invested in these cards and not these other cards, it's more because of a lack of education than it is because of any, you know, reasoning or knowledge or um, strategic decision that he made that pointed him towards top tops flagship base over the other cards. Um, he doesn't, he just doesn't like a lot of new people. He doesn't know about the other cards and a lot of people, what they collected as kids was a normal tops, non-serial numbered cards. And those are the ones that they're naturally finding. And the ones that are easier to, the ones that have the highest PSA 10 pops, the ones that have the most sold listing comps on eBay, even on, even in raw form. So, so I get it. That makes sense to me. Um, I think at some point 
you know, those that jump into the hobby, the ones that stay, will discover all the all of these other cards as well. And that's not just Bowman Chrome, but that's Topps Heritage, Topps Chrome, maybe Allen and Ginter and some of these more specialized sets as well. There's such a abundance of variety right now. I mean, every year they're putting out 50, 60, 100 products. I don't even, I've lost track at this point because there's so many pack pulled products and then you have the on-demand products and all this stuff. So if you're getting into the hobby, you're, you're going to be overwhelmed. And if I think you'll be almost more overwhelmed if you collect it in the late 80s, early 90s, whenever, and then you got out of it and you're coming back and you're like, what is all this? It's, you know, you used to think it was a lot when it was Upper Deck, Fleer, Score, Donruss, and Tops. Now it's like Tops, unlimited uh, products, it seems. So it does make sense. I think Tops flagship being that traditional card, I think does help it and should help its popularity to a degree. But I mean, I guess we'll just see where the uh, next trend is. If we continue to add people into this hobby in whatever way, new money coming in, people are going to collect all these base cards. They're going to be looking for the next thing. So what is that next thing? Is it a product that's been around a long time, like a Topps Finest that people may sort of remember from the early 90s? Is it something completely new? I guess we'll uh, we'll find out at some point. It it should be interesting though. It's I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to see where the hobby goes from here. It's hard to imagine some of these prices escalating anymore, but something tells me they may. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Like you said, I mean, it, it's been cool to watch the hobby evolve. Even over the last three or four years, you see brands like Topps Chrome Sapphire come out, and the amount of popularity like they've been garnering is just ridiculous. I know you had a chance to. Uh, pick up a couple of those from 2018. Um, I wish, yeah, I bet you probably wish you kept them sealed. Actually, you did pull a nice Acuna auto, if I, if I remember right. I did. I did hit the Acuna auto. I never hit that base card. I certainly wish I did, but uh, it's too late for that now, I guess. I think the last price I saw one of those base Acunas go for was, what, like 7500 or something ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, I could have got them for 3500 in January, December. They were around 2000 or 3000 for quite some time, and then all of a sudden they just doubled, just like, boom. And some of that was probably commensurate to the increased, or the, um, the spike of the Series 2 short print bat down as well. That probably helped. But um, you, you brought up earlier a little bit ago about the amount of talent that's in baseball today and how that's affecting prices. And I would say from firsthand experience, I got back into the hobby back in like 2014, 2015. And then I took some time off and I collected a little bit on the way, picked up a few cards each year, probably up till 2018 is when I got back into it hard in the middle of the summer. And that is because I noticed Acuna. I noticed Soto. First thing I did was check eBay and I'm like, okay, these guys are legit. And I tried to play the game like, okay, well, Ronald Acuna, you know, He's sort of in the shadow now of Juan Soto because Juan Soto probably had the stronger start. And I was trying to play the game of let's buy the guy that's lower. And it worked out really well. Um, and Juan Soto, I'm still somewhat piecing today. Uh, but that was definitely a big draw for me. So I could imagine the effect it's had on other people as well. And then you have Luis Robert, Joe Adele, some of these very, very explosive type players with a ton of potential. Uh, Wanda Franco will be next after that. Julio Rodriguez, Marco Luciano. I mean, we're not done yet. 
You know, we think that Acuna and Soto might be generational type guys. They've been playing for a year and a half to two years, but um, they kind of have that it factor. Uh, Ronald Acuna's obviously got the five tools. He can contribute in many different ways. Um, he has a chance to go 40-40 this year. I actually think he, he has a really great chance of doing that, from the lead, batting from the leadoff spot the entire year. Juan Soto, we saw what he did in the World Series, teeing off two of the top best two of the best pitchers in the American league, the best pitchers in the American league last year. Um, and just making it look so easy and uh, contributing in every game, despite just turning 21 years old. Uh, so what a, what an, an, an amazing hitter. Um, he's got like the pure hitter potential that reminds me of Manny Ramirez, just from the left side, just a, a remarkable approach, very disciplined and mature. Um, just awesome to watch these guys and it, really makes me more interested in baseball too than I had been before. Yeah, they're just so good. And, you know, I guess it's the times that we're in is going to play a factor. Guys can be better nutritioned, healthier, work out better. They're able to study film and such. But it's hard to expect a slowdown in the amount of talent we have uh, going forward. Uh, Acuna and Soto are both unbelievable Unfortunately, as a Phillies fan, I get to see those guys play a lot. It's enjoyable to see them play until, you know, they hit the key home runs in the seventh inning and, you know, destroy Phillies pitching. I, I get to see that very, very often. But, uh, no, it's Well, at, it's at least you got this. At least you got the second best Nationals outfielder with Harper. There you go. I mean, it's better than <laughs> some of the stuff they've been tossing out there for the last decade. But True, true, true. Yeah. It's, uh it's been a lot of fun though. It's definitely, it correlates baseball and the hobby and watching these guys play something that'll be interesting to see how the market, you know, the market's been so active and the card market uh, prices increasing. What happens when some of these guys struggle or get injured? How much of a dip will we see? That'll be pretty fascinating. And who are the guys out there that no one's paying attention to right now where their cards are probably still a bargain and they might be potential MVP candidates. Uh, that's something we'll see this year as well. We're going to see some guys just kind of have unbelievable seasons, and in many cases, their uh, card prices will probably shoot up quite a bit. So that's uh, part of the hobby that's also fun, being able to kind of speculate on certain players, what their performance will be like, and how that might affect their card values, prices, and such. Right. Like who's going to be the Christian Yelich of two years ago that just has that um, kind of post post peak <laughs> or post hype kind of explosion. Christian Yelich was already an above average player, but then he just took it to a different level, started hitting more fly balls, moved to a more hitter friendly environment. Really just everything came together, increased his hard hit rate and barrel rate and exit velo. And who's going to make that next adjustment? I thought it was going to be Andrew Benatendi last year, but you know, sometimes you just never know. That's why they play the games. <laughs> yeah, Andrew Benatendi's kind of become a forgotten guy in the hobby at this point. He was, uh, back in 2017, you had Judge and Bellinger, because Bellinger came on a little later that year. He wasn't in some of the early season products. And Benatendi was one of those top three, four guys there with Bregman and didn't have a great year last year. And now his stuff is obviously quite affordable, but we'll see. I mean, he's obviously still an excellent player. It's can he take that next step and become a, a star player? And you really need that star power to uh, be recognized well in the hobby. All right. So let's talk a little bit about collecting, flipping, dealing. 
I get the sense that you do a little bit of everything. I mean, you've pretty much said as much. Um, I, is there a way that you kind of describe yourself in the hobby? Well, you know, for every purchase transaction that happens in the hobby, there has to be a selling transaction on the other side. It's just you know, on the platform that we spend most of our time on YouTube, most people kind of focus more on the buying side of it. And sometimes it's a little frowned down upon to, to talk about the, the selling piece. Um, although, you know, I've kind of shamelessly made some content where I've talked about my experiences dealing, selling, flipping, et cetera. I know Triple Crown 24 and there's a few others, Lico 3, that also um, make mention of their experiences there selling on eBay, selling at shows, et cetera. I would say, um, you know, most people aren't going to fall into one category, whether it's a, a dealer slash flipper or a collector. Most people are going to be a hybrid. And I'm a hybrid, but I'm probably, you know, 75% dealer slash flipper, 25% collector. Um, I would say if somebody held a gun to my head or even a water gun to my head, I would be willing to sell any one of my cards for the right price. For the most part, there's certain guys that I'm inclined to hold for a little bit longer. Um, in the past, it was Alex Bregman. I'd like to think I was right about him, but then he cheated. And um, we know about the whole stigma that's surrounding the Astros now. So maybe I was wrong about him. But, you know, I was on him years ago and um, and he definitely improved and put up an MVP type season. Actually came closer to winning than Christian Yelich in the NL. Um, but, um, now I would say that the guys that I'm holding a little bit longer than most others would be Mike Trout and Juan Soto. Um, I just think longer term, they're a little bit safer. Um, and they're among two of my favorite players. I don't know. Uh, most other guys, most other cards and players, I'd say Raphael Devers is probably also in that, in that group too. So those would be my, my top three that I'm sort of PCing. Um, usually I refer to my collection as an inventory versus a PC, but those guys would be closer to a PC than any. Well, I think this hobby has gotten to the point where it's so pricey and especially if you're going to open product, it's somewhat impossible not to sell at some point. Um, obviously everyone does different things. Some people do sports cards. That's their full-time job. Other people might do it a little bit on the side but if you're involved in all aspects of the hobby like i don't understand how you can break product unless you open like one box of tops per year that's one thing but if you open multiple products or multiple boxes of a product it's kind of difficult to uh be in a situation where you're not selling some of it to recoup some money i mean the hobby's pretty pricey so sometimes you have to uh sell something to buy something so it's it's a hobby that kind of lends itself to doing a little bit of everything to collecting, to flipping some stuff from time to time when the time is right, maybe dealing in some stuff. But there's just so much going on. I think one of the things that you make really interesting with your videos, of course, um, whether it be selling stuff or your speculation series, has been the analytical approach you take to it. You're not just someone who's out there throwing out names going, oh, I like this guy, this guy, that guy, whoever pops to your head. You're really kind of thinking about it. Uh, considering it and looking into some actual numbers, trends, markets guys are in. So I believe that's, you know, one of the big reasons people have enjoyed and continued to come back and discover your channel. It's definitely a very positive, uh, you know, you're not going to be right on every single player, right? No, nobody is, 
or the market. But when you're putting actual thought and uh, numbers into it, that's going to help your success rate and make sense to people. So I think you've obviously done a really good job with that. Yeah. At the same time, you know, I don't want to create a perception that that makes people think that I'm always right, or you could do the same thing that I'm doing. And I'm only going to show my winners. Um, I actually probably should do a better job showing my losers over time. But like you said, it's, it's going to be impossible to get everything right. And my whole analytical data driven, whatever you want to call it approach is something that has sort of been, you know, it's translated from my experience playing fantasy baseball. Uh, it, it allows me more direct exposure to players that I can flip. Uh, I just find it super interesting. I find it more interesting than buying and selling stocks, which I've done some of as well, which I still do. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. It's enjoyable. And uh, if, if I can get my flips to pay for uh, the hobby that I enjoy, then it's just a win-win for me. And it's so, uh, like you mentioned, it, how interesting it is because it does intertwine with everything. Like you can watch the games, you can go to the games, whatever. You're, you're enjoying the sport itself, and then you're following the news in the sport and kind of that real-time history that's taken place in the sport and what's going on in baseball itself, following all this on-field stuff, and then applying that to the hobby, to the card market, and it's just there's so many things intertwined uh, with the hobby and it involving sports. It's not something completely separate. There's so many uh, factors to it. Of course, you mentioned fantasy baseball, uh, legalized sports gambling in this country or in parts of this country. There's, there's so many aspects that are getting people involved. I, I think that's something that everyone can kind of uh, find fun and uh, find a way to connect everything with this hobby. Yeah, it's it's unlike any other alternative asset. You know, you could buy a piece of art and slap it on your wall, and what do you, you know, then what do you do? You know, is that is that fun? It's not fun to me. Uh, buying and selling financial assets that you never actually hold in your hand, you can't watch them and perform and go four for four the next night, hit, hit three home runs, and share it on Instagram. And it's just baseball cards are just really cool. Um, just sports cards in general. Um, you talked about, you know, all the different angles that has drawn people and that have drawn people in the hobby. There's also the sneaker flipper with basketball. Some of those might have spilled over and started collecting basketball cards. And some of that effect from basketball, as we know, it's got more of an international presence. It's been super popular, maybe even more popular from a domestic standpoint lately. Um, and then maybe some of those have collectors, investors, flippers have already spilled over into baseball. Yeah, and the basketball market, which... I am aware of, but I do not actively follow because I'm just not a basketball guy, but that market is insane. And it kind of goes to show maybe where the baseball market can even move to. Um, if it becomes popular enough, obviously basketball, you have a little more star power on an individual player basis with basketball. And like you said, that international market is uh, pretty stellar. And that's, what's kind of interesting as well about this hobby. A every sport, is a little different basketball. The prices are going crazy. Baseball. You still have that. Uh, I don't know whether it's just the history of it, but whatever's keeping baseball really strong football, despite how popular that sport is, the hobby is strong, but an individual player values seem 
like they're not on par maybe with the other sports. Obviously, quarterbacks might be a different story, but other players just don't seem to have that holding uh, standard. So it's just interesting to kind of follow how these things are all moving in different directions while being part of the same hobby. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, With football, you could probably equate it to many different things. There's always going to be a higher risk of injury. There's always going to be the issue with probably shorter uh, average careers with key positions like running backs, um, probably causing that. And, and, you know, it's not that football hasn't done a great job marketing itself. It's arguably done a better job than Manfred's been doing with the MLB. But, you know, it's not always going to be 100% correlated with the strength of the the sport itself. So, Well, I think a big factor, too, is the perceived value of items. People want to own and buy items that have value. And there's always going to be outliers, and some people say, I don't care if my collection's worth nothing or whatever. But generally speaking, people want to own things that are valued uh, for whatever reason, just to feel good about it, uh, to have Mm -hmm. some sense of security that they can move those items in the future should they need to, or maybe to leave it for a loved one. But I do think uh, having a strong market is always important for any type of hobby. you know, you see things that lose value over time. And next thing you know, nobody wants them. It's like something like starting lineups, for instance, like I grew up on starting lineups. I still like them. I have a handful that I collected over the years, but like right now you look at it, there's no market for starting lineups. They're just perceived as something that's not really worth anything, even though there might be some actual value in it. Uh, the cards themselves, if you can get high grades, actually have pr- pretty solid value. They're tough to get. But once something gets a stigma of having uh, no value, I think that can harm uh, the collectability to a degree of it. So uh, I do think it's important to have a strong market. And I feel like that's almost the case with football singles right now. Uh, a lot of people kind of – it has that stigma. It's like, all right, these guys, these – Legend quarterbacks, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, they're going to have value that's sustained. But these running backs, well, as good as they are right now, in three years, they're not going to have any value. So do I really want to invest my time and hard-earned money in them? And for a lot of people, that answer is no. And I think that's what kind of can hurt that sport uh, particularly. All right, let's talk a little bit about grading. Uh, What are your thoughts on grading right now? Because obviously that is the trend in the hobby. PSA is the most popular right now, whether it's the registry, whether it's the resale prices, uh, PSA 10s in particular. Uh, Even though PSA has had some issues in the last year, they've been involved in uh, a whole whole bunch of uh, issues, trimming issues, allegations. It hasn't seemed to have much of an effect whatsoever on... Uh, the value that car- PSA graded cards are or their business. They're uh, still booming. BGS and SGC also uh, obviously bringing in a tremendous amount of business as well. It's crazy right now. PSA or I guess parent company CLCT reported the most recent quarter, the highest profits and revenues in the history of the brand and they they um, attributed that to the increased interest in, well, they call it pack rippers. So it's, it's modern sports cards. It's basically what they're saying. And when 
I guess the pack ripper connotation to me means that it's probably a lot of base cards and stuff that's not intrinsically valued all too high from the get-go. So it's interesting they, they use those words. But um, it's gotten a little bit frustrating for me. I mean, I still will use PSA for the resale value, just given that's where the market you know, sits right now in regards to what they'd prefer um, with um, comparable grades across the three major grading companies, major grading companies that you mentioned. But, um, you know, five months, five and a half months now for bulk orders. Um, soon that could be six months, seven months, eight months, who knows, a million card backlog. It doesn't look like they're really actively hiring a lot of people. I know they're saying that they're trying to build up or they're in the middle of changing out their infrastructure or their operational processes to make things a little more efficient. I don't know how true that is. They've never really been transparent with much of that. What they do internally, you know, how much time is being spent on each card and how many people sign off on each card, even though they're giving us that that workflow now, little dashboard where they tell you if it's in like QA1, QA2, and all those different steps. It kind of reminds me of Domino's. You know, it all of a sudden it's it's on stage two of seven, and then three days later it's on stage like six. So one person just like hits the button, escalates it through the next three or four because they just forgot. Um, so you, you're getting this like, you know, peace of mind or you think you're getting more transparency, but are you really? Um, so, yeah, I've been a little frustrated with PSA. Um, I've started to use some services where I can get my cards back quicker, whether that's regular or express. And I'm at the point where I'm considering with bulk orders, maybe using a different service now with Beckett BGS, I don't know if you heard, but they recently took away their guarantee on turnaround times. I'm not sure how many services that affects. Um, I haven't used Beckett all too much lately. I've used them once. I think I snuck them in before that February timeframe where they just switched things over. But um, yeah, SGC to me has some appeal because at the end of the day, you know, what is important to us consumers when we grade a card? I would say it's, you know, three or four different things. One, you want to make sure that the grades are strict and conservative, right? Two, the grade should be consistent from one card to the next. This stands for both modern and vintage, right? Three, you know, they should be able to detect counterfeit cards, altered cards, trimmed cards, right? And then four, unfortunately, is what SGC lacks. It's what's the resale value, right? Even if you're a collector, you know, you don't want to sink all this money into a slab when it could have been worth two, three, four times more and another holder, um, you know, hypothetically, if that was the case. But I think this opens up an opportunity for SGC. Um, I don't know how they can scale versus the other grading companies, um, you know, in regards to if they were to see uh, an increased market share, if their market share was to double over the next two or three years, which would take a lot for that to happen just because of PSA's revenues are increasing ridiculously so um not saying their market share would double this year or the next but you know you start to wonder about things like that are they ready for an increase like that and what were to happen and, and what's to happen if they were um accused of negligence or fraud uh they're such a small company that doesn't have the backing the internal lawyers on retainer like a psa or clct has um would they be able to to fend off a you know a class action lawsuit like psa might be able to do who knows? But it's definitely interesting. I hadn't purchased an SGC card in probably, for modern at least, 
for modern, I hadn't purchased an SEC card in about four and a half years. And over the last month, I bought three. So kind of shows like where I'm, at, where I'm heading. And I know a lot of other YouTubers like Alico3 and Nolan, you know, they're starting to push um, SGC a little bit more as a viable service, starting to show that they're submitting some cards through there and giving their feedback on what cards they got versus what they thought they deserved. And SGC, I mean, it's never been knocked for being too loose on the grades it gives out. It's never been knocked on, as far as what I've seen, on being inconsistent. Um, the the slabs, from what I from what I can tell, um, people like the way they look generally. Um, for most um, generations of cards, of course, most known for pre-war, especially if the cards over 100 years ago, pre-1920. Now, 50s, 60s, some people like the way they look in SGC holders, some don't. Modern cards, the black gasket, I'm starting to really like it. It's really the label where I think they need a little bit of help. I don't know if there's a magic bullet solution, but I would say that that's most people's gripe now with the aesthetics of SGC. Yeah, I think SGC has been around a long enough. They've been around long enough, and I do trust their grading, and I think they've done a good job over the years. I do believe they will continue to become more popular because they're one of the big three. They're not going to be as popular as PSA or even Beckett right now. And a lot of that has to do with that resale value. But I do think with some bigger people pushing it, um, I know Gary V's sent some stuff to them. He's talked about SGC a little bit. I do think that will create a bigger interest and you're going to have more people sending that way just to get them back quicker. Uh, the question which you brought up is, will they be able to handle it? Uh, I think that's been the problem with PSA is I doubt they even expect it, the amount of business to come their way and to continue to just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger with no slowdown. Um, you know, some people, it's a whole debate and you can go into that for hours I tend to think that PSA's biggest problem was being ill-prepared and rushing through things. I mean, you never know. You could have someone doing things that they shouldn't do or being involved in purposely passing things through. Who knows? I think it was just flying through things, not measuring things properly, not maybe taking the time they should have with certain cards. That That's my assumption with that whole situation. Um, and you think even now, like being so backlogged, like how do you ever catch up when you have more stuff coming in every day? You have more stuff coming in than you can get out. So it's interesting because it's only becoming more and more popular. And as we see these prices surge on these flagship tops rookies, that's not going to make people go, hey, you know what? I'm not going to get these cards graded. It's going to make even more people say, oh, I want to get these graded. I want to take a chance on these rookie cards. So I'm prepared when there's the next surge. So I don't know what's going to happen, but grading is becoming exponentially more popular, seemingly day by day. And we have the three big guys right now, if you want to call PSA, BGS, and SGC the big guys. I mean, is there room for a fourth big grader? I'm sure there certainly is, but will people trust it enough? Will it have that value? I mean, can you turn that around that quick seems unlikely to me i feel like we're kind of with these three companies for right now most people would say that regardless of an industry that a company resides in it would be it would be atypical for two industry giants to hold the top 
two ranking in market share for a period of greater than 30 years, which S, which PSA and Beckett have been doing. So it's it's impossible to predict the future. Um, but right now, over the next three to five years, I don't see another alternative coming in. I mean, we've seen so many different mom and pop type grading companies try to establish themselves. It's almost like somebody sitting on a handful of like junk wax, bought a slabbing machine and was like, yeah, GMA, let's like give myself all these tens and uh, try to resell these for triple or four times what they're worth. You know, no knock on GMA. They're just the one that stands out to me most in regards to probably the, the name that I see the most of the independent third-party grading companies if BCCG doesn't qualify as one of those really strange that's still under the Beckett umbrella. But uh, yeah, SGC, they have probably the best chance of fighting into some of the market share of the other two big guys, but naturally there's going to be some growing pains for them too. Yeah, and you mentioned the Beckett news, which I did see a few weeks ago, and I feel like it's only a matter of time before a PSA comes out with something similar. I mean, as of now, they're basically ignoring all their turnaround times anyway. I have a card that was for eight-day service that was logged like February 17th or something. We're recording this on March 10th, and it hasn't moved one bit. It was logged, and it's in the research it's like it's one card it's eight days and it's had zero right. movement now i'm assuming it's gonna have some movement in the next few days maybe that's a bad assumption on my part but whether it's eight day 20 day 40 day or 85 days i mean if it feels like they're not even considering turnaround times right now as they try and move through things and you know we haven't heard a whole lot about them potentially expanding and such. So I don't know what's going to happen, but it feels like it's going to get worse before it ever gets better with PSA. But at the same time, people are all about those PSA slabs. Um, I would say value is probably the number one reason. Uh, registries definitely plays a role, but less of a role than it used to because the trend right now in the hobby is definitely towards modern, especially with grading. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I like the PSA slabs the best personally, but it's all about the quality of the grading as well. So I, I can live with SGC slabs. I don't mind them. I'm not as huge of a fan as some other people, but I do like them. Yeah, I'm looking at my an SGC slab right now next to PSA. And uh, a lot of it is, I think a lot of it is just what we're used to seeing and uniformity within one's collection. Uh, PSA has done a great job at making a very sleek slab and making improvements on the tamper-proof quality. Beckett hasn't improved the quality of their slab in quite some time. It's It feels rigid in your hand, um, which is nice, but at the same time, it's the same exact design as what they probably had about 10 years ago. It probably hasn't changed that much. Yeah, Beckett, so that's unfortunate. Big, Beckett has always felt big and bulky and sharp to me for whatever reason. SGC, I guess their holders are a little bit wider, correct? They're there's a little bigger in size. Yeah, I think, and then PSA has like some waterproof stuff going on in the back too. But um, yeah, PSA is just really exploiting their current industry position, taking advantage of the leverage that they have, acting in somewhat of an oligopoly where you have two big giants and nothing else. Um, very similar to Comcast, Verizon, you know, trying to deal with those companies, not getting the customer service that you want, not delivering on their promises. Uh, it is quite frustrating, but you know, there's a bunch of 
for lack of a better term, sheep or followers, and we're we're followers and sheep as well. Um, it's going to take kind of us to mentally escape from our, you know, first preference being PSA for PSA really to ever want to change anything. So I guess what would help PSA improve is for SGC actually to gain some market share. So that would be good for all of them, I think. So there you go. Filmington endorses sending all your stuff to SGC. Let's uh, make PSA uh, recognize. <laughs> we'll see what happens with that. Uh, it's been a, been a fun episode. Just want to wrap it up real quick with some thoughts on sealed wax. Obviously, wax is constantly being opened. You see brand new products getting ripped by breakers all the time and just people enjoying the hobby. Therefore, it feels like there's less sealed wax than there used to be. That might not be true, but it feels that way, at least when I think back to the younger days of collecting in the late 80s and such, where there's still probably pallets of sealed wax somewhere. Um, We've seen some increased values in sealed wax, especially uh, products that feature key rookie cards. The prices have just soared. Uh, What are your thoughts on the sealed wax prices? Like, do you expect them to continue to hold, to rise? What uh, what are some thoughts on some of the key products out there that are still sealed, where we see more and more open? Maybe they get placed in a rookie card explosion box and get broken. Maybe people um, take a chance at breaking some big stuff. But there's always stuff being opened, and prices seemingly rising. Yeah, well, there's the you know the sealed wax prices from of products from years ago, and then there we have an issue, of course, with. The prices of uh, hobby products increasing. You have distributors that are increasing their commissions, um, getting more greedy, holding back products. Um, I'm seeing it from shop owners, from people that have the um, brick and mortar rights to be able to to get those um, products for a little bit cheaper from distributors or from tops directly. They're complaining about the amount that they're getting, the prices that they're getting it for. Uh, they don't actually blame tops or the manufacturers like Panini directly. They're more blaming the the middlemen, the distributors that are taking more of that that cut. But talking about the the sealed products from some of the ones I include in the rookie card explosion box, for, for instance, like 2013 tops update, 2018 tops update, which right now hobby boxes of that. Good luck finding one for under 400 bucks. And these could be easily found January of 2019 for $50 to $60. Uh, What I've seen, because as you know, I'm buying quite a bit of wax for the Rookie Card Explosion Box. The Topps flagship brands, those products have just gotten out of control. Even 2017 Topps Update, I was talking with Alico3 the other day. Hey, do you have any of this? And he said that it was selling for 40 bucks for a long time and nobody was buying it. But now it's up to 140 bucks, about 40% since the Cody Bellinger price spike that we've seen over the last three weeks with his U.S. 50 swinging rookie. I think that Topps flagship, this stands for Series 1, Series 2, anything with the key rookie that's seen as an average or above average lineup, I think that those prices are going to continue to trend upwards. As you know, the more people that open it, the harder it is to find it, the more the prices will go up. That's even independent of the demand changing of the underlying players within it. Um, what I've noticed though, is that there's some Bowman products from years ago, like 2014 Bowman draft or 2013 Bowman baseball, even 2016 Bowman baseball hobby products of that. They haven't moved as much. 
Some of it might be because they're more hit-oriented and they have redemptions which expire usually two to three years after the product comes out. Uh, but some of it is because I think, uh, and it's not because of the first Bowman Chrome autograph card being any less desirable, um, because it is still very desirable. I think it's just because you get a better ROI from opening up Topps flagship. You're going to get more cards that hold value. If you don't get um, a, a Bowman Chrome first card or a Bowman Chrome first autograph of a real key guy, then you're not you're probably not going to pay off the product. It's just very very hit or miss. Plus the normal base cards, whether the, whether it's a Bowman first or base paper Bowman first, as you know, those don't sell for as much usually as the the tops update rookie card, even though that those are going to be in higher quantity from a print run perspective. So it's just um, just shows kind of how the hobbies change over the years in favor of the the tops flagship for that base card. Bowman Chrome, obviously the autograph is still very desirable, but it's very hard to hit. It's very hit or miss with the Bowman products. And I think that's affected the prices of the Bowman sealed products, not increasing as much as some of the other ones. No, the return on investment, if you break it, is definitely a factor. And I was thinking about that with uh, 2018 update, which I don't even what's a jumbo box now. I don't even 600, 800, something ridiculous. Like I would never yes, break. Yeah. I would never pay that and break it. But if you did, at least with a jumbo box, you generally speaking, you're not guaranteed anything, but usually you get a full set out of one of those. So if you can kind of count on a Soto and an Acuna, not that you can guarantee them being tens on the paper cards. It's especially, that's definitely not a guarantee, but let's say you assume that you hit one of each and let's assume you pull a 10 on them. At least there, maybe you're getting half your money back, at least at the current market prices. And you could get two of each. You never know. You have that chance for the color parallels though. Yeah. Tough, like yeah. Three hundred fifty card set, but at least you can somewhat count on maybe getting back half your money because there's obviously other rookies that have some value as well. Yes, that's a hundred percent right. Um, yeah, the parallels you could hit, and it's not just Bowman Chrome and Bowman that don't offer the best ROI for some of these older products. But as you know, because you open up a lot of wax more than I do, Tops Chrome, Tops Heritage, the ROI just isn't there with some of these products, um, especially years later when more and more get opened and the price kind of spikes unjustifiably. So, and then, you know, you're looking at the same hit cards and the same percentages of getting and not getting those hit cards. Yeah. If you do a tops Chrome jumbo box and you get your five autographs, if you break it, when it comes out at a reasonable price, you get five losers. If we'll be so bold, uh, <laughs> maybe you get $25 for those five cards, five bucks a piece. But five years yeah. later, if you hit those five guys, you'd be lucky to get $5. So, I mean, it's only a $20 difference, but you might be paying two or three times the price for the box. Obviously, you could get a color autograph of someone incredible, and then you'd be great. But, I mean, the matter of fact is, you know, generally breaking, you're going to lose. I mean, that's part of the thrill of opening product, right? You have that opportunity to pull that golden ticket maybe, but... I don't know. It'll just be interesting. Sometimes it's just hard to justify opening things at a certain price point. Once they get to a certain level, it's like, I mean, if you have all the money in the world, obviously it's not a factor, but who in their right mind right now can spend what it would cost to buy a box of 2011 tops update and break it. And it's like, if you don't get a 
color parallel Mike Trout, you're destroyed. Like you're bankrupt. Like, how do you do it? I know. Yeah. It's interesting to see the disparity over time when you look at like 2018 tops update and what it would take to actually pay off that box versus a product that's a lot more difficult to find at this point, not just because they printed about a quarter of what they printed versus 2018, but because there's been so many more open to like, yeah, it's that, that 2011 tops update box. If you buy that, keep it sealed, just keep it sealed for about 10 years and then figure out what you want to do with it. Don't open it. Yeah. There's, there's no point to open it. No point at all. But Phil, it's been great talking to you. Had some fun talking about the hobby. Obviously uh, this hobby is, going crazy right now and it'll be interesting to see how things play out what the baseball season has to offer what the upcoming national in atlantic city pending it taking place depending on you know what's going on with the health of this country i mean we'll see how if they're allowing large crowds to gather it's just gonna be interesting to see the hype the hype going there that's a part of the year where we have a lot of hobby hype and the hobby's in full swing now so i think it's gonna be a very entertaining and fun um, hobby scene for the next couple of years for sure. So great talking to you and uh, let, let me know if you have any final thoughts right now. No, I just like to thank you for the opportunity of being on this podcast and um, also looking forward to the national, if I can make it hoping to make it, if it is occurring, like you said, and uh, it's going to be a real exciting year for the hobby. I think. All right, everyone appreciate you listening to this episode of hobby talk. Have a great one.